Hello, everyone. Welcome to the UK Sangha. Uh, we meet up every week. Um, pretty much, this is just a bunch of friends hanging out and uh, enjoying each other's noble company. Um, and we had a question about friendship or just even just the topic of friendship with it, which is a wonderful topic. Um, a testimonial for myself is that uh, I was practicing meditation and uh, trying to become awakened mostly by myself without a regular group of people I was meeting up with. And um, that only got me so far from watching all the YouTube videos and doing this and that. But uh, uh, once I joined the Sangha and I was actually interacting with other friends who have the same goals, the same um, ideals, the same motives uh, to develop a noble mind practice loving kindness, practice compassion towards each other, and seek the good and welfare of their companions in the holy life. Uh, my practice has escalated tenfold since then. So a uh, main reason why I do these calls every week is because of all the joy it gives me to interact with um, all of you wonderful people who join these calls uh, for a noble reason. So friendship that is noble uh, kind of influences each other to purify our minds and, and act with intentions of goodwill. So a lot of friendships out in the world is not really based on uh, lifting each other up and helping each other feel good, more so based on competition, jealousy, malicious gossip. Um, does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> ha have you guys ever had friends that when one of the friends isn't there, you're gossiping about them? And then when that there and the other friend <laughs> and the other friend isn't there, then you're gossiping about that friend. And actually, it's not really a wholesome friendship. It's really just a, a circle of, of a, a hierarchy trying to put yourself above one another. And um, that's not exactly, uh, that doesn't really feel good. Um, <laughs> So that doesn't really lead to um, the welfare and happiness of those friends. But um, there's something very unique and special about a Sangha like this, is that everyone who joins is actually interested in the happiness of each other. Um, we don't put ourselves above each other. We don't put each other down. Um, we don't create a hierarchy. Everyone here is just friends. And in that spirit, uh, the Dhamma is taught. So um, Damarado didn't teach me as my master. He taught me as my friend. Um, he was just a good friend that I could call. And we would have a friendly conversation about the Dhamma. And I learned immensely 
uh, from him in that way. Um, I think uh, in, in the Buddhist lore, this the second coming of the Buddha or whatever, uh, the is gonna come. It, it says it's gonna come in the form of a Maitreya Buddha, and I believe that translates to a friend. So the idea is that when the Buddha comes back, he comes back in the form of a friend. Um, and w when he was there a uh, couple thousand years ago, uh, because of the time period, he was a master and uh, a lord because he was so far beyond anyone else at the time that um, the only relationship he could have with those around him would be an elevated one because because um because of the sophistication and inside of his own awakening but um he did actually teach um many of his disciples to the same unsurpassed awakening that the buddha has achieved so the idea is that the buddha attained the highest awakening, the most unsurpassed, uh, the most liberated, the most emancipated insights that is metaphysically and universally, spiritually, uh, scientifically possible in any way, shape or form. And it's not that he's the only one that could do it, like in Christianity or something, like Jesus is God and we can only hope to be like him. but anyone who practices the Dhamma and practices the teachings of the Buddha can attain to that same unsurpassed awakening, but they cannot surpass it. So it, <laughs> so any, so any, anyone has the potential and the capability to attain to Buddhahood that is at the same level of the Buddha himself. So he's not a God, but more so, uh, an awakened being and any being has the potential to achieve that same awakening so that that's the only reason that um he taught the dhamma and that's the only reason that uh buddhas before him and buddhas after teach the dhamma because um it's not just to it's not for to to get people to like you or for or the status or anything like that. It's because it's actually possible for other people to get it to the full extent you have. And it's a worthy endeavor and it's a noble pursuit. And it's so good that it's worth spreading. And um, you have compassion uh, for, other, for others who are suffering, um, who have not developed the same uh, wisdom and insight. <sighs> Um, is it, is there anything someone has to say about that or ask about that? Yeah, but there's nothing to do with friendship. What? Well, huh? Yeah, I would like, I would like to ask a question, but there's nothing to do with friendship. Okay, that's fine. <clears throat> What's the difference between uh, Buddhahood and Arahanthood? Oh, um, 
our hot ship would just be the same as Buddhahood, and I'm using it synonymous, synonymously. Oh, um, but um, uh, I think in terms of the actual practice that you do, um, uh, the idea of our hot ship should be not something in the forefront of your mind, but uh, it should be more like seeing the way things are right now. Because the only thing that makes someone uh, an arhat is because they have little dust in their eyes and either through their own meditation or through somebody else teaching them the Dhamma, they were able to fully see clearly reality and the nature of reality as it unfolds right now. And, um, and uh, so that would be called right view, noble right view. And noble right view is the highest quality um, in all of the Eightfold Noble Path. So if you can take, if you can stop, take a step back from your experience, take a step back from all of your wants, take a step back from all of your dislikes and likes, take a step back from all of your imaginations of the future, and take a step back from all of your recalling of the past and take a step back from all of your idea of yourself and just look at your experience as it unfolds completely objectively and with an unbiased lens clear of any of any biases so clear of any oh but i want this to happen oh but i'm worried about that and oh uh what does this person think of me or oh how am i coming off right now or any any concepts that are that are in the suttas it says tinged with mental proliferation so per, uh, perceptions and notions tinged with mental proliferation now does that does that sound very obscure to you guys or does that make sense um because i can try to explain it but perceptions and notions tinged with mental proliferation essentially uh when the mind is proliferating about what's going on instead of just simply looking at what's going on so that's mindfulness mindfulness is just simply watching uh things unfold and then insight uh is born out of that clear seeing so if you take away all of the mental proliferating which is any uh, conception of self any conception of past and future and you just see reality as it unfolds um that is the path to awakening and that's the noble path but uh, that can be very difficult to immediately do. So there's uh, practices and methods and stepping stones to clear the mind up to get there. Um, uh, sometimes people, people practice uh, sila, so acting virtuous. A lot of monks will go um, into monkhood and just, even though on the inside, 
their suffering on the outside they will uh, maintain bodily acts of loving kindness they won't do anything harmful they won't say anything harmful and eventually that penetrates into their mind and then their mind is stilled and purified but uh here in the damarado sangha we uh, practice the other way around so we practice the immediate purification of the mind uh taking the mind out of dukkha uh, looking at things nobly, looking at things clearly, looking at things, looking at reality the way a Buddha would. And then um, that will start to change the habits and our external activities as well, including our thoughts and actions. Um, I have a, I have a, um, of sutta here that I can read at any time, but I'm actually happy if if there's questions. I enjoy um, questions because um, maybe the sutta maybe the sutta doesn't resonate with you, or it doesn't make sense, or it doesn't strike a chord. So um, oftentimes it's a better way of learning if someone has a specific question about the dhamma. But uh, I can always read the sutta if anyone. <laughs> doesn't have a question. Mm, yeah, maybe I got one. Okay, go for it. Um, well, how to deal with restlessness slash being bored? Because like Sati kicks in and I could take a deep breath and maybe just sit for five minutes or whatever but i really don't want to like i just want to keep binge scrolling youtube shorts or really think about stuff sometimes i don't even want to throw out stuff out of my head in the sense of like yeah that's i, I know it's dukkha but yeah yeah so so the restlessness so the restlessness um is essentially a feeling uh it's called vedana so it's a specific type of sensation that's going on in your body and the normal reaction to this sensation is to scroll instagram to find a youtube video to uh distract try try to find some hit of dopamine uh try to get uh maybe you'll call up a friend maybe you'll text someone maybe you'll try to get someone to respond to you maybe you'll go eat some junk food, maybe you'll go do all kinds of stuff to dis to try to run away from this feeling of restlessness. But um, as we all know and have discovered, um, none of those actually really uh, lead to the end of that restlessness. They kind of just prolong it and mask it over. So um, the noble approach to restlessness is to sit down, not do anything to try to get rid of it, and just simply look at it and see what it really is. So you sit there, don't do anything, and just let yourself be restless. And um, you can watch this feeling, see what it really is. It's not. It's not going to hurt you. It's just some sort of uh, sensation of agitation, of discomfort. And this sensation of agitation and discomfort 
is only prolonged by the avoidance of it and by the ignorance of it. So if we take a noble approach to restlessness, we say, okay, I'm, I'm not going to run away from this restless anymore. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to solve this here and now. So I'm going to sit down. What is it really? It's not a big bad boogeyman. It's just an unpleasant feeling. So you sit and you observe the unpleasant feeling and you see it for what it is. It's actually just a sensation and this sensation comes and goes. So um, that's the good news about right view is that you see things aren't as bad as that you thought they were. You check, uh, this is kind of a spiritual adulthood. So the child is scared of the boogeyman under the bed and needs the parent to come look under it and say, oh, there's actually no boogeyman in there. <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> so we're doing the same thing. Um, so essentially there's like, you can think about it in an internal family system. There's an inner child in all of us that's scared, afraid, restless, and bored. But there's also an inner adult, and that's the wisdom of your own mind. That's the critical thinking, and that's the awareness. The inner adult is the one that has the capacity to make decisions, has the one to discern this from that, um, has the one to know, oh, I'm not going to put my hand on that stove because it's hot and it's going to burn me. That's the inner adult. So the problem is uh, in our internal family system, uh, the inner child has been ignored and it has not been nourished and it has not been consoled. And it has kind of just been shut up, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a bad parenting on the inside of ourselves. It's like shut up, like, like uh, you shouldn't, feel like you judge yourself for feeling afraid you judge yourself for feeling restless and kind of just give it a time out shut it away in its room and um, it just gets worse so you have to pay attention to the feelings and the thoughts that are going on within your own mind and body and um, the reason why we don't pay attention to it is because uh, we believe that there's a boogeyman down there and we're too scared to look. So the fear perpetuates itself. But once we sit, uh, we be still, we let the restlessness be what it is, and we look at it with an objective lens, with uh, the mentality of a Buddha, with the attitude of a Buddha, I can do this. There's this feeling is just a feeling. Feeling is a feeling. Bodily sensation is bodily sensation. Thoughts are just thoughts. And we sit there and we let them be as they are and we look at them clearly. And then <laughs> a magical thing happens where we see there actually is no boogeyman under that bed or hiding in the closet. The sensation is unpleasant. I'm not saying it's not unpleasant. But the sensation has no inherent existence in the sense that it arises and it vanishes. There's no sensation that you have in your body 
and there's no thought that you have in their, your mind that ever is permanent. So essentially the restlessness and all the other hindrances are a cluster of impermanent sensations that are perpetuated by the ignoring of them and by the ignorance of them and by the belief that they're a continuous force without seeing that these things are actually coming and go like the weather. Um, and uh, the practice of thinking wholesome thoughts and throwing unwholesome thoughts out is just to further demonstrate how impermanent they are by taking uh, by taking the right effort, taking the incentive to show, hey, this this uh, negative state of mind, this negative emotion is and it's of course it's impermanent because I can change it right now by gladdening my mind, by thinking of wholesome stuff, by thinking, I don't need to want anything right now. This is enough. I can sit here and just be satisfied, right? So that's a direct demonstration of impermanence right there. But what I'm talking about with the noble right view is what's taught in most meditation is to look at the suffering clearly for what it is, and see it as impermanent. But just seeing suffering and continuing to wallow in it isn't enough because that's only the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the cause of suffering. So you see what is causing it. And what what is causing it is the un unwholesome activity of your own mind. So the thoughts of negativity the thoughts about the past and the future, the thoughts of self. So all of your negative emotions are revolved around a alleged continuous entity called me <laughs> that um, can suffer from the past or the future. And um, the good news is that the past is gone. It has vanished. So when it was here, it was arisen. And uh, now that it's gone, it has vanished. This is literally what Anicca means or impermanence. And the future hasn't even arisen. So it's yet to come. Um, there's only one thing that you really need to pay attention to, which is the current thoughts and the current feeling. And that's a lot easier to handle than all of the stuff that you're mentally proliferating about and worrying about. So the current thought may be an unwholesome thought and the current feeling may be an unwholesome feeling. But it's only one thought and it's only one feeling. That's a lot easier to deal with than all of the speculation about what's going to happen and all of the digging stuff out of the graveyard out in the past. So I can change one thought into a wholesome thought. That's no problem. But if I think, oh, I need to change all my thoughts coming in the future into, into wholesome thoughts, or what about all that bad experience, all that traumas I had in the past? The only reason those are causing your problems is because they're coming up in the form of the current thought. Mm -hmm. 
So this is all that we need to deal with is what's happening here and now. And that's right view. So seeing reality as it is here and now. In mm -hmm. fact, you're sitting in this room. <laughs> There's no real problems around. There's no real danger. And you can talk yourself into uh, a feeling of safety and security. So the inner child is restless. The inner child is afraid. But uh, through the wisdom eye, through the wisdom adult, through the wisdom inner adult, you can look around and talk yourself into, wow, actually, there's nothing to worry about right now. There's nothing I need to do. And there's no danger here. And so I can simply sit here and relax all of my bodily uh, sensations. There's tensions in your body. You can practice bodily tranquility here and now because there's no danger to worry about. And how do we practice bodily tranquility here and now? Is by taking deep breaths. And simply letting go of any tensions that we find in the body that we may have been holding on to unconsciously. Um, and when the body is still, when the body is relaxed, the mind becomes clear. <laughs> Welcome, Ian. Good to have you. <laughs> hey, friend. How's it going? Good to Hello. see you. We are just talking about uh, restlessness and uh, how to deal with restlessness. Um, does that mm -hmm. answer? I think that was the end of my little spiel. Does that answer your question, Marcel? Yeah, it does. It does. All right, wonderful. Okay, um, I'm going to take a quick uh, bathroom break because I drink a lot of liquids and I think I have a small bladder. So um, I'll be right back um, in like two minutes. But uh, look at this uh, little mug I got. My sister got it for me. How lucky. All right, guys, uh, please conversate with each other while I'm gone. <laughs> Or you can sit in silence. <laughs> <laughs> Hope I didn't miss out on too much. No, not really. Just breathless talk. <laughs> Continuous talking, breathless talking. A rest, uh, talk, talking about restlessness. Mm hmm. I, I believe Scott has a sutta with him that he could mm -hmm. read. Nobody got any questions, so we'll see. Yeah, I, I find myself more with answers than questions nowadays. It's interesting. That's pretty nice. Yeah, I spent just so much time studying and paying attention to people that seem more aware than I. I love paying attention to people with awareness. Okay. Um, I'm back. <laughs> I had a little cessation, so I vanished and I have arisen again. Um, um, okay, so um, I'm opening it up to any questions related about Dhamma, meditation, um 
anything to that extent, uh, feel My, free. Yeah. I got a curiosity between Dhamma and Dharma. Is it just a linguistic difference? Uh, okay, yeah, Dhamma is the Pali, uh, the Pali pronunciation of it and the Pali spelling, and Dharma is the Sanskrit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Sanskrit is a newer language that uh, came up in India, and Dhamma is an older, more ancient form of language that was in India in the time, uh, Pali. And there's some debate. Well, there's some, uh, actually, the uh, the Buddha himself um, most likely didn't speak Pali, but he, he, he spoke something uh, probably very similar to Pali. And also he spoke a mixture of different dialects of the places he visited at, at the time. But the most ancient um, recordings and the most ancient scriptures of the teachings of the Buddha are in Pali. And, oh. and anything in Sanskrit was uh, later translations. Um, but it's very similar. So Dhamma, Dharma. Um, yeah. Nibbana like, do you, is. Do you know the history? What's that? Well, I don't mean to interrupt. Go for it. Well, do you know the history behind Sanskrit? Like the story of where it came from? No, I, I'm really not a linguistic ex expert. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Because um, I have my history and my connection towards Sanskrit comes from yoga initiations, yoga practice. And so the story I was given during my training was essentially that Sanskrit came about because there were some ancient mystics, the rishis, the seers of ancient India. And they basically went to the Himalayan mountains to meditate and eventually they returned and they returned not only with sanskrit but with ayurveda cool yeah so like um there was rishis the rishis um are more ancient than even the buddha so there was um mystics and uh practicers of hinduism and schools of advaita vedanta and stuff uh and and then the buddha uh came around so uh, a lot a lot of the concepts in hinduism um is directly negated by the buddha and said that it's not the way to enlightenment but there is some there is also some parallels and some overlaps <laughs> because um the the tradition that i came from originally was actually advaita vedanta yeah. and um i had an advaita teacher so i practiced uh there is only one reality and you're the self and the eternal self. Um, but uh, it turns out I wasn't satisfied by that uh, completely. <laughs> Although it did lead to great fruits. And I don't think, I think it primed me for the Dhamma, for the teaching, mm -hmm. of the Buddha, which uh, um, in my direct experience has transcended it. But, what, um, can, you, can you share some of what you think a distinction is between Advaita Vedanta and then the Dhamma of your current practice? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. So um, Advaita Vedanta, it makes uh, claims about the nature of consciousness uh, that we cannot know for certain. So it projects consciousness 
as uh, the ground of being in the sense that it's fundamental aspect of reality. And the Buddha says, no, consciousness is dependently arisen because it does not arise without a cause and a condition. Mm. So there is a cause and a condition for the arisal of consciousness. Uh, consciousness itself all is reality, yes, but it's not the ground of being or it's not the fundamental aspect of reality. Um, it, 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 so it says uh, pretty much um, in the Dhamma, there is the idea of the Dhammakaya. And the Dhammakaya translates to the full body of things or the reality body. So that would be the big kahuna or that would be God. Um, but um, in, in, in the Dhamma, the Dhammakaya is independent, not dependent upon the attribute of consciousness. So consciousness is dependently originated and the Dhammakaya is the natural law of the arisal and passing away of all things. Um, does that does that make any sense? Or? Yeah, it makes me curious about Dhammakaya. It just so so Dhamma so um, Dhamma literally just means the thing. So Dhamma is essentially the way things are. So the Dhamma can be seen in your thoughts. The Dhamma can be seen in your feelings. The Dhamma can be seen in your uh, uh, sensory, all of your sensory experiences. So um, in your sights, in your um, hearing, in your taste, in your bodily tangibles, and in the cognizing of the mind. And it says that consciousness is dependent upon these faculties. So um, there is the I faculty, and then there is the form that the I faculty comes in contact with. And through the contact between the I faculty and the form that the that the um, I comes in contact with, I consciousness arises. So the Buddha differentiates different types of consciousness. He says there is I consciousness, there is sound consciousness, there is taste consciousness, there is tangible bodily sensation consciousness, and there, there is mind consciousness or the cognizing of your mind, essentially thoughts and mental imagery. But it's also it's saying that all of these are dependently originated by the things that it observes. So in Advaita Vedanta, it says that the observer, the witness, the self, is independent of all of the objects that it perceives. Um, but actually, the Dhamma teaches that the observer, the observed, and the observing are all codependently arising 
and each one lacks inherent existence apart from its relationship to the other two. <laughs> so it's saying that all of it is the Dhammakaya. So all of it is the sublime reality, the true nature of things. So um, the awakened state is described as uh, Yatabhuta Jnana Dasana which translates to knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. So it shares no clinging to this is me. <laughs> it just says this is the way it is. And me comes and goes. <laughs> and that's that's actually a good thing because reality is just reality. And what actually makes reality a problem is the idea that this is I, me, or mine. <laughs> That's Just, where all the suffering comes in. That whole thing, like what makes it a problem? It's like, well, over identification with the mind, like yes. with the thinking, it's like that cloud overhead. That's the reason why I'm upset. Oh, I see you're insane. Okay. <laughs> yes, but, but the only reason uh, uh, suffering arises is conditioned by the thought and not even the thought the feeling and the intention that this is me that is mine mm -hmm. or this is i it's an incorrect identification it's a misidentification of self yeah. into something that's temporary from the eternal presence yeah, so I would say one of the, um, okay, so yeah, that's where it differentiates. Oh. So, so the eternal presence, uh, the Buddha teaches everything is impermanent. There is no, mm -hmm. uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing lasts forever. There's no yes. eternity. So everything is impermanent and everything is changing from moment to moment and nothing stays the same. Um, and, um, even presence and uh but something that overlaps incredibly well with uh the advaita or hindu tradition with the dhamma is the neti neti process oh yeah if you've heard of it so oh yeah i know i was um yeah i was initiated into the yoga of synthesis at the shivananda ashram in grass valley california and the description of neti 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 that was a big thing uh, shivananda yoga now what really struck me the most about my time there was when they gave me my name they gave me a spiritual name and they gave me shankara and then the story of their lineage the oldest yogi in their lineage was a shankara I don't want to say Adi Shankaracharya. That was a local Swami, I guess I could say, or teacher. Very cool guy. But it was an old Shankara, and apparently he traveled ancient India and he walked on foot from one house to the other, going to all of the leading spiritual teachers, you could say. And he argued Advaita Vedanta until like he would sit at the dinner table with the hu husband and wife until the wife said he was right and then he would leave 
Yeah, so that's like absolutely opposite to what the Buddha would have done. Because in the Buddha, there's no motive to uh, proselytize or evangelize the teaching. Because uh, for the Buddha, uh, he is completely satisfied. And he teaches the Dhamma to all who come to him. And um, there's no motive to spread it. <laughs> because it spreads itself to those who have eyes to see. Yes. For um, one who knows and sees, not for one who not does not know and see. So, for for in the suttas, in the suttas, uh, oftentimes it mentions the Dhamma is for the wise. Mm -hmm. but the Dhamma is for one who has little dust in your eyes. So almost a prerequisite <laughs> to even come close to beginning to comprehend the profundity of the Dhamma is to see it. Uh, recognize the truth of it and seek it out for yourself. So I, I, I have the same approach to psychedelics. I don't go yes. around. I don't go around. Hey guys, everyone needs to try this acid. Like here, it's gonna spread the acid, right? But if somebody seeks it out, it could be a powerful transformative tool, right? So it's the same way with the spiritual teaching. We don't go door to door in the Dhamma like the, the like the Mormons or like that guy. <laughs> That's just uh, yeah, yeah, it was an old yogi talking about yoga, basically, in my eyes. And that's what I love so much about Buddha and Buddhism. Like Buddhism was the first like real big perspective on reality that caught me. So, so um, um, the states that are attained through yoga are intermediary steps of the Dhamma. <laughs> so actually, the skills that you have developed through yoga um, are transferable. But what we're saying is this, what, what was taken in the yoga tradition to be the ultimate can, is actually not the ultimate, and there is a more sublime state. But the state that is attained through the yoga is still really good. It's still a wholesome state of mind, and it's still up there. It's usually in one of the, so there's eight jhanas. It's in one of the boundless jhanas. One mm -hmm. of the boundless jhanas is actually called boundless consciousness. Yes. And so, <laughs> yes, but this, but this is a state that is attained through meditation, but it is not the ultimate enlightenment. So I actually attained boundless consciousness like, oh, everything's consciousness. It's all me. Vast awareness. And and it's eternal. And, and I was convinced that it's eternal. This is eternity. This is God. But uh, that experience arises. It stays for some time. And then it goes away. <laughs> and now I can hold on to it. A past experience, right? I can say, okay. Now that I had that experience, I know consciousness is internal, and now that's my dogma, and now it's like a religion to me, <laughs> and now I worship it. But the Buddha says, open your eyes. That is gone. Look at reality now. Poof. So it's a, this is it. Look at reality now. Mm -hmm. um, look at things now. So I think this is an excellent segue into the sutta I'm about to read. Oh. And um, so I'll, I'll read it. And um, 
Um, so the, it's translated from the Pali, right? So um, perhaps the translation may not directly explain it in the way that the Buddha intended, but for me, the translations make a lot of sense, but I'll do my best to explain it. And I hope it uh, strikes into your guys' hearts as much as it, as it has mine. So um, um, again, uh, another thing about the Dhamma is that it's a core principle of the Dhamma is the idea of paticca samapada. So it means dependent origination. That things are things arise and vanish due to the causes and conditions for things to arise and vanish, even enlightenment and ignorance. So um, this sutta is going to get into that. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, 12.23, and it's uh, Connected Discourses on Causation, and it's titled Proximate Cause. Proximate cause. So does does everyone know what proximate means? Proximate cause. DJ? I think it has something to do with proximity, right? Like a closeness? Yes, it's, it's yeah. the immediate cause. Mm -hmm. So it's like a marble hits another marble and it rolls. The marble that hit that marble is the proximate cause for that other marble mm -hmm. to roll. So... Um, yes. Okay. At Savati, Bhikkhus, I say the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees. And uh, the idea of taints here is the barriers or the defilements to awakening. So essentially, what's stopping you from being completely liberated here and now is the taints. Bhikkhus, I say that the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and does not see. For one who know, knows what, for one who sees what, does the destruction of the taints come about? Question mark. And the answer is, such is form, such is its origin, such is its passing away. Such is feeling, such is its origin, such is its passing away. Such is perception, such is its feeling. I mean, such is its origin, such is its passing away. And perception in the Dhamma means interpretation, not the initial experience. So um, th this is an important differentiation too, because most people think seeing is a perception, but no, perception here means there's the raw data of our immediate sensory experience. And then after we get that raw data, there is the interpretation of that data. And that is what is meant by perception. So just like a computer has data and then it interprets the data and it, it translates the ones and zeros into what you see on the screen. The same thing happens in consciousness and in the mind. There's the raw data of our six sense bases, and then there's the interpretation of that data to create a continuous self, an idea of this is me and mine, and an idea of intentions and volitions, and I'm going here, and I'm doing this, and 
all of those things are interpreting the raw data. Um, so that's what perception means, not the data itself. Um, such are volitional formations. Such is its origin. Such is its passing away. Volitional formations. Does anyone want to give a shot at what that means? Oh, oh. The volitional formations would be sankaras, right? Like the piling on the memory systems. Or is this uh, before the, the, that? The sankara would be, I think, I believe would be form. Volitional formations uh, would be intentions. Oh, okay. So that's what volition means. So the intention to do something. It's not exactly the same as a thought. So like I can have the intention to pick pick up my arm, reach over for that cup over there and drink it without ever thinking about it, right? The intention to do something, the intention to move my arm, if I'm making a hand gesture when I'm talking, I don't think, oh, I'm going to move my hand like this. But there is the intention for that action to happen. So that would be a volitional formation. So um, uh, there's many parts of our experience, and it's very detailed and nuanced um, how this whole <coughs> beautiful emergent self operates with its many parts and pieces. <coughs> and the Buddha teaches paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to all the specific parts and pieces. So he's saying it's actually important to develop insight into, oh, this is perception. This is it, how it appears and this is how it disappears. This is how my intentions arise and pass away. So instead of saying, oh, it's just all consciousness, let's look at the mechanisms. Because if we have an understanding of the mechanisms, we have an understanding of suffering. And how does suffering arise? First noble truth, second noble truth. How does it pass away? And the way leading to it passing away. That is the four noble truths. And that's the totality of the teaching of the Buddha. So we're not concerned about whether the physical reality is really made of consciousness or it's actually physical reality. We're only concerned about suffering. <laughs> the arisal and the passing away. And so we can become inner scientists and in how does our human experience operate? How does suffering arise and how it passes away? And we can become masters of that process so we can live a happy and fulfilling life. And if there is an afterlife, we'll be in a good destination because of um, the karma that we have created. But But if there isn't, so we're not saying there is or there isn't because we don't know what happens when you die. Then we'll just enjoy life here and now. So it's good any way you cut it. Um, okay, so I got a little sidetrack. I have a question, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So intention would be like a, the urge, right? A urge, yeah. You can say it's an urge. Um, but I wouldn't, uh, urge is kind of more vague. You can confuse that with a craving. 
So like mm-hmm. the, the urge to eat something or the urge to um, have sex or the urge to masturbate, like that would be a craving. But mm-hmm. the, the intention is right before you do it and then you do it. You see what so what, what would be the Pali word? The Pali word for uh, intent? I don't know. See, I don't know all the Pali words. I, I, I read the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation of the suttas. Okay, okay. So every now and then I'll, I'll, I'll throw out a Pali word that I know because uh, it makes me sound more legit and more official and <laughs> more knowledgeable. <laughs> But I don't, I'm not, I haven't studied the Pali, like I'm not, I don't know all the Pali words. I know like a couple of the like really important ones, but um, um okay, yeah, I'm asking because yeah, because I kind of studied first the Pali, so that so that's uh, why I want to compare. But but uh, and and do you know for uh, you say the um, not the intention, but the other word you talked about was uh, perception. Do you do you know if it's uh, sanya in Pali? I did, I don't know. I can no. link the I can link the sutta that I'm reading, and then you could yeah. uh, com- compare the polyver. I'll just put it in the chat. Um, the okay. exact sutta that I'm reading, um, and okay, then you good. can compare the words. Um, okay. <laughs> okay. So I left off with volitional formations, and then uh, we go to consciousness. Such is consciousness. Such is its origin such is its passing away so in the dhamma we say even consciousness is neti neti not me not me because um, it comes and goes you know you go to you go to deep sleep you wake up it's not fundamental to you um can you hear me all right from now or no? i can hear you yeah oh, okay yeah i just changed my microphone settings trying to make it so it doesn't pick up just my breathing Oh yeah, you sound good. You sound great. Oh, good, good. It has me thinking a lot about the Dharma, not just the Dharma, but the Tao. It's like the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Yes, 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 yes. So yeah, so um, a lot of what you find in Taoism is actually uh, very in line with the Dharma. So I would say I would say Taoism is closer to um, the teaching of the Buddha than the Dharma. But it's just that uh, the Dhamma is like, I think Taoism is a little bit more poetic and it's profound. If you understand, if you can read the Tao Te Ching and you understand it, then I would say uh, that's, then you understand the Dhamma. But the, under, the Dhamma is more detailed and elaborated and it gets a little more specific to avoid any confusions or vague or pitfalls. Yeah, because, details are important. Yes, because because for somebody, someone can read um, a Taoist poem, and it could strike them profoundly, and a and the understanding happens. But for another person, they may read it and just be like, "Huh, what the hell is this?" Right. So um, actually, and the same thing happens with the Dhamma too. But it's the nature of wisdom. What? It's just the nature of wisdom. <clears throat> yes. You know, uh, there's a time and place for the understanding of, it, of everything. It's all based on the causes and conditions. Um, <clears throat> but here I go. Continue. Welcome, Yuri. Uh, we're just 
about scratching the surface of a sutta. We're already an hour in, but uh, this luckily the sutta isn't very long. Um, but it's good to have you, Yerdi. Um, he, he's one of our friends here that joins here regularly. Thank you. Okay. Such is consciousness, such is its origin, such is its passing away. <clears throat> it is for one who knows thus, for one who sees thus, that the, the, the destruction of the taints come about. I say, bhikkhus, that the knowledge of destruction in regard to destruction has approximate cause. So destruction here is another way to say cessation or the vanishing. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for the knowledge of destruction? It should be said literally. <laughs> I'm going to mute you, Vedia. <laughs> it should be said liberation. I say, Bhikkhus, that liberation too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for liberation? It should be said dispassion. So dispassion is an important concept in Buddhism. Um, does it, DJ, do, do you have... Uh, would you like to explain what dispassion is? Or I'd like to hear how you think of that, DJ. Our wise and noble friend, DJ. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm thinking of dispassion as you just see that it's... I mean, it really is just seeing that it's pointless to to cling to things, so you're no longer wrapped up in them. You're disenchanted is, might be another way, right, of saying it. It's just that that doesn't... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think also disentangled is a good word from it. Yeah. Disentangled, that's a good word. Yeah, so dispassion, um, a way I like to think about it is kind of like, uh, this is a, something that came from actually my previous advice to teacher, but it overlaps. Um, it's like a holy indifference or almost like a holy laziness. It's not the same as like, oh, I don't give a fuck about anything. But it's like a holy uh, equanimity, a holy laziness, a holy indifference. It doesn't matter one way or another the things that happen because it all comes and goes, just like the wind through the trees. So I can just relax and not get wrapped up, not cling to any of it. Dispassion. Um, so it's kind of a sublime state to be in. It's not. It's not a... It's not like a downer state to be in that someone may uh, interpret it like, oh, I, I don't care about anything anymore. No, it's like a sublime unaffectedness, uh, sublime imperturbability. Um, and uh, so, but dispassion has a cause, just like everything else. I say, Bhikkhus, that dispassion too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for dispassion? It should be said revulsion. Ooh, so revulsion. What does that mean? It means I'm fed up with this. <laughs> I'm fed up with suffering. I'm fed I'm fed up with with the endless cycle. 
of wanting something, never quite getting satisfied, uh, craving for sensual pleasures, getting the sensual pleasures, and then going back into pain and then striving for sensual pleasures again, and then being on this endless hedonic treadmill. It's going to keep going as soon as you're enchanted by it, passionate for it. But you, <laughs> what leads to dispassion is you become fed up with it. So you're a revulsion. Um, and the, I mean, uh, the only credit I'll give to the uh, stages of insight Vipassana map, map is that in the Dukanyanas it has disgust. So it's not exactly disgust, but something that can be um, similar to what someone might interpret that map to be is revulsion. So being fed up with it. So you see that the endless wanting something else and the endless searching and the endless striving is not going to lead to lasting happiness and satisfaction. So you take your stand, you become fed up with it, and you and that leads to dispassion, or that leads to equanimity, unaffectedness. But you know, revulsion has a proximate cause, like everything else. I say bhikkhus, that revulsion too has a proximate cause. It does not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for revulsion? It should be said. The knowledge and vision of things as they really are. So seeing clearly. Noble right view. Looking at reality as it is, not how you imagine it is or how you proliferate it's going to be. Or how you construct that it was. Now, every time you remember a memory, you're not remembering what happened. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. So it's a mental construction. But see, seeing uh, knowledge and vision of things as they really are is doing away with all of that and seeing reality as it is here and now. Seeing thoughts as thoughts. <clears throat> seeing feelings as feelings, seeing body as body, taste as taste, sound as sound. I say, Bhikkhus, that the knowledge and vision of things as they really are too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for the knowledge and vision of things as they really are? It should be said concentration. So here concentration is a translation of the word samadhi. And I would say it's a bad translation. Because uh, most people's idea of concentration is not the what the Buddha meant by samadhi. And samadhi is another word that's uh, in the yoga traditions and in the in the um, Hindu traditions. But samadhi uh, would be better translated to collectedness or uh, unification of mind. 
So instead of going everywhere, bouncing around, everything kind of comes together so that it's like uh, if the waters are perturbed, samadhi is distilling out of those waters so that you can see clearly through the sea foam. You can see to the bottom. If the waters are disturbed, it's unconcentrated. Um, there's a crowd in your mind. Parts of your mind are thinking this, parts of your mind are thinking that, parts of your mind want that, it's going there, over there. Um, bringing all of those parts and pieces together into one unified basket and one collected space is what uh, samadhi means or concentration. I say, Bhikkhus, that concentration too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for concentration? It should be said, happiness. So before you even get to the concentration or the samadhi, there's the happiness. <laughs> A lot of people try to skip the steps here, you know? They try to go to they try to go to the concentration. Oh, I'm gonna concentrate my mind. I'm gonna bring. I'm gonna meditate. I'm miserable, but I'm gonna meditate. Nope. You gotta become happy. You got the the happiness here. Uh, I think is a translation of sukha. So comfort, ease, tranquility. So that's why the first in order to purify the mind, you have to purify the. You have to relax the body. And that's where the pranayama comes in, which here is anapanasati. So the breathing. As I breathe in long, I know that I breathe in long. So you guys um, breathe in a way that your chest physically is rising and falling. Quite literally, this is beyond probably any other point of agreement. This is probably our biggest point of agreement is the value of the of the breath of the, the breath. Yes. breath. It is beyond calculation. Yes, yes, that's probably one of the most fundamental. That's that's the main method the Buddha gave. And then after you master that method, he elaborates all this other more advanced stuff. But first, practice the breathing. So I lit like when I say breathe in a way that your chest is rising and falling, I'm li I literally mean that. Like I want to see your guys' chest rise and fall like as you breathe. Like you see how my collarbone comes up? Belly expands, chest expands. Yeah, see DJ's doing it. So I have to read, so I'm not going to be doing it the whole time, but <laughs> please, All good. please continue with Never the breathing. Stopped. Okay, um, it should be said happiness. I say bhikkhus, the happiness too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for happiness? It should be said tranquility. I say because the tranquility too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for tranquility? It should be said rapture. 
So rapture here is a translation of pity. Rapture means joy. So, I mean, rapture is kind of like I can see it on your face right now, Ian. <laughs> That's the pity. So pity is like when you're you're smiling so hard that your cheeks start to get sore. That's pity. So there's an there's kind of an energy to it. Um, there's a liveliness. So, a liveliness, energetic uh, PT that 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 comes about, and and when that when that rapture sort of calms down, then it goes into tranquility, and that tranquility goes into um, goes into um, happiness, and then samadhi, and then and that's when the revulsion happens. That's when the dispassion happens. So the dispassion is kind of like after all this transcendent joy and rapture and then you see that oh you experienced all this happiness literally from nothing not from any sensual pleasures not from anything of the world so then you realize why was i looking why was i searching for happiness in the world why did i think i would get it here i found it all right here it all came from within me so so then that there's dispassion so that girl didn't text you back. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Here I am, happy as ha I'm a happy camper. Um, I'm dispassionate about the ups and downs of the world, the praise and the blame, the 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 people dying. Okay, I already know people are gonna die. I, I'm <laughs> that's just the way it is. Things don't work out. Go for it. Uh, and and tranquility, what would that be? Maybe Pasadi? I don't know. Uh, tranquility would be, yeah, I think so. So um, if we go in the order of the jhanas, which I think this is what it's talking about. Um, what, what is the, the sutta number, be, please? Huh? What is the sutta number, please? Oh, it's uh, Samyutta Nikaya 12.23. Okay. So, um, in the order of the jhanas, um, the first jhana would be piti and sukha. So piti is rapture and joy, and sukha is comfort and body. So I think sukha is tranquility, and I think happiness here would be um, equanimity. So for first, first jhana, there is the applied and the sustained, the thinking and the examining thought. Uh, in the presence of piti and sukha, so joyous rapture and comfort of body, and the cessation of the applied and sustained thoughts leads to second jhana, which is just the experience of the good feelings without the thought about them. So the piti and the sukha, <coughs> and the cessation of the piti, and when there's just sukha, so just comfort and happiness of body, is third jhana. And then when that goes away, there's just equanimity. Um, so I believe that's the correlation between uh, the way it's translated in this specific sutta. Um, okay, so I say because that rapture too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for rapture? It should be said gladness. 
I say, Bhikkhus, that gladness too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for gladness? It should be said faith. So um, this is referring to gladdening the mind with the Dhamma. And faith here is not um, the same way you would think of it in Christianity. Like, oh, I have faith in Jesus that he died and was resurrected or that he's coming to save me. Daddy, big sky daddy is going to save me. Faith is more like conviction or taking, <clears throat> finding solace, taking refuge in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. So in Buddhism, there's the idea of the triple gem, which is central. The triple gem is made of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so the Buddha is, is instead of thinking of it as literally the person, the Buddha, who's dead now, the Buddha is the awakened state of mind. So you know that there is a awakened state, even if you're not in it yet. To some extent, you have faith that there is an awakened state. There is a liberation from suffering that's attainable. So the Buddha is the awakened state. The Dhamma is the teaching. So the Dhamma is the instruction of how to get there. And the Sangha is the all the friends we have here today. So the Sangha is the, the spiritual com community and the spiritual companionship. So um, all these three things lead to the conviction and then the single-pointedness and the fearlessness and, and destroying all the doubt in the practice and destroying all the doubt in the Dhamma, that there is a way out of suffering. Um, so that's what it means by faith. It doesn't mean like blind faith, right? It's based off the reality. And then, <clears throat> and that's even a more mundane understanding. The supra mundane understanding of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is that I am the Buddha. Everything I think, everything I do, everything I say, everything I feel, everything I see, everything, all of my intentions, all of my mental formations is the Dhamma. All of my actions are the Dhamma. Picking up this cup and drinking it. I'm teaching the Dhamma right now. And my immediate environment is the Sangha. So everybody's my friend. I go to the grocery store. That's my Sangha. I'm the Buddha. What I, everything I'm doing, everything I'm saying is the Dhamma. That's uh, the triple gem in the full fruition of it, or the super mundane understanding. Um, um, uh, and again, practice having that attitude. So even before you attain to that, practice being a Buddha. Don't think of yourself, think of yourself as a Buddha, right? This is where the kind of Zen uh, teachings come in, your Buddha nature, your inherent Buddha nature. So there, there's also um, in the Eightfold Noble Path, uh, there's the Sama Sankapa, which essentially means the right attitude. So you have to approach the meditation. You have to approach the thing with the right attitude. You can approach it with the attitude, oh, I don't know. I'm, 
I'm not a, I'm a, not an advanced meditator or this is difficult or this is hard. No, you go, this is a piece of case. This is a piece of cake. I can do this. I'm a lion. I am a Buddha, right? So that's the right attitude. So approach the meditation. Practice as if you are already fully enlightened. And then I don't want to say fake it till you make it, but like it kind of it's going to build its own inertia towards that direction. Um, it's because it's a practice, you know, there's nothing it is. There's no need to fake anything. It'll naturally happen. You have to do uh, there is some amount of effort that goes into it, um, which would be the right effort. But but the cool thing about right effort is it's not a lot of effort. It's simply <clears throat> the least amount of effort to get the job done. So efficiency, efficiency, exactly. Expedient means, you know, exactly. Um, and that's uh, that's why I say um, this teaching is the most efficient. So that's what I personally found. And so I'm proclaiming it here every Wednesday. uh not to say that there's other traditions out there and people uh find their own liberation but the only thing that what what comes down to the nuance for me is because like just pure respect first off because it's so rare to find someone who's actually teaching buddhism who's actually living buddhism who's actually like it's not just a dogma of preconceived buddhism like it's actual uh, Buddhism. Like it's very rare. Credit the, 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 Amarado for that. Yeah, for sure. The the only point of distinction that I make is that when we get down to the specifics of individual living human beings today, it can be more expedient for them to follow a path that doesn't make sense to somebody else. Certainly. And so be, being able to get in touch with that level of differentiation that we're dealing with nowadays that's where it's at for me. Right. Although I, I have infinite respect for Buddha and everything he's done because No, certainly. This is kind of like um this is a this is the most profound teaching there is and um although even I think anyone at any level of intelligence can understand it. Um I think like for example for my mom, like I try to teach her the Dhamma, but I think the best thing for her and the thing that resonates with her and the thing that works for her is just going to church and believing yeah. in, believing in kind of the bullshit that they feed her there. But I think her. that for where she is, that's that seems to um, ease her soul the most. So that's it's just the time and place for everyone and what what, uh, what works for them. But if they come into my sangha and propose it, then I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna totally just like just shit on it and like. Well, say, I mean, <laughs> if they come into your house and say exactly. you built it wrong, it's like, well, actually, no. Let me knock on this wall real quick yeah, and no, show you how like, sturdy it is. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you get that. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So, and then another thing is. Um, yeah, I don't think if it wasn't for the other traditions that I practiced, I, I think it kind of primed me for this teaching as well. So I see a necessary place for all of it. And if you actually go to the actual um, story of the Buddha, is that he he practiced and he attained um, many 
or like a lot of the traditions that were around in the in India, like he mastered them. He was um, the best. I mean, he was the spiritual attainer that yeah, attained he was, like he was no the other. Spiritual attainer. And then he went into the forest and discovered the dom, the true Dhamma. <laughs> he was like, let's stop starving ourselves. Let's take care of these bodies, you know, let's yes. eat, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, yes, 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 yes. Excellent, excellent. Um, the middle way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so not, not, not starving ourselves, but not overindulging either. There's a middle way. Mm -hmm. and, and the middle way is the Dhamma. Um, <clears throat> the middle way of utmost respect for all living beings. I say, I, I don't think the Buddha like ne necessarily respected all living beings in the same way, but he had mm. compassion for all living beings. Is Fair. A different. Fair. So it, there's some suttas where he pretty much calls someone a, a foolish moron. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You got to like, be real. You got to be like real. He's like a misguided man. This you have misrepresented my teaching. Uh, that's one of my favorite suttas. Um, but yeah, so like I um, and he says you have not kindled even a spark of wisdom. So that's kind of bow. So like people have a people may have an idea of the Buddha. It's like oh, this perfect angel. I would never say anything bad about. But that's not the way it is. But did he have compassion for all living beings and seek the good and welfare for all living beings, no matter class and creed, no matter uh, race, no matter anything? Yes. So it's all about the goodwill. So you want others um, to be free of suffering, irrespective of who and what they are. 100%. Yeah, he would teach the Dhamma to anyone, right? Even a serial killer. Angulimala. Yes. He teaches the Dhamma to him. Yes. So you know there's no one who, who can't benefit from the Dhamma. From I mean, the, like, Dhamma. the serial killer meets Buddha and suddenly is a priest of Buddha, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, you know that story then, Ian? <laughs> of course. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're all, you're all pretty, you're pretty well studied oh, I mean, in the Dhamma. When, when I said that Buddhism was the first big picture that really caught me, I wasn't kidding. Like, it was the first... Nice, yeah. It's just there's a lot of fake Buddhism out there. So there's I, a lot of oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. So that's why uh, for me it was the same. Like I was turned off by Buddhism because the only forms I saw of it were kind of like the Westernized. They were, ter forms. They were terrible, and even the people terrible. in the East they took it terrible in the worst way. Like they'd be like the religion. It's like right that they're, they're not helping their dying neighbors because well it's their karma. I'm just going to sit yeah, here yeah. and watch my neighbor cry out in pain, needing yeah. help. Like, so, yeah. <gasps> yeah. So just like, so the same thing happens with Buddhism, just like Christianity. There's, there's Jesus. And then there's the teachings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the religion and the politics and the people who change it later on. Mm -hmm. So, but, but the cool thing about Buddhism is there's still, there's still the real deal. There's still the lineage, but it's it not, it's hard to, I mean, I found it on freaking Skype and I could call him for free. So it was that's why I was surprised to see you here and to hear the true depth <clears throat> of what you have to say, because I just I, I can see the integrity screaming from every cell in your being. You know? Authentic. Right. And that's yeah. the same thing I saw in um, my teacher. And that's why I, that's the only reason I called him. So 
-hmm. yeah so uh, i really appreciate you saying that and um uh, a thing i like to say is the proof is in the pudding so um the proof of the teaching is in the the students of the teacher and the results and in the authenticity and in actually how it makes you feel does it make you feel good and uplifted or does it make you wanting more and does it make you conflicted and does it make you oh i gotta pay eight hundred dollars for this this private seminar and i need it's like it's like a personal trainer or something like just right. like a scam. like um, like the way the way you speak here it reminds me of the the first ever real organized group that i was into personally it was it was a specific form of buddhism called the nichiren sect so they followed somebody called the daishonin who claimed to have unveiled the Buddha's teaching and all we have to do now is chant nam myoho renge kyo nam myoho renge kyo nam myoho renge kyo over and over and we'll get it we just do some good daimoku do some good mantras that's all we need let's just do that right and, and that was fun for a time you know i mean it's definitely fun that that rhythm that horse it still gallops within me but yeah i mean um yeah you can you can you can use these things as tools to kind of gather the mind and so you can think a wholesome thought that is safe but um um there's actually a sutta that says once we get guide the thoughts into a safe place like a herd of cattle into a safe pasture so that can be with a mantra or a wholesome thought once we know it's in a safe place and it's not going to get us in any trouble so your mind isn't going into any places that are causing dukkha um, then you can relax the thought formation and sit down by the uh, shady tree and stop thinking so um, the buddha actually says if i although this soft is this thought is completely safe there's no danger there's no harm in this thought if i keep thinking this thought over and over my mind will become agitated and if my mind is agitated, my mind will become disturbed. So eventually, if I keep bang banging the same mantra over and over, I'm going to tire myself out. And then eventually I'm going not going to be an enjoyable state. So you, you use the raft to get to the other shore. And once you get there, you can you don't carry the raft with you. It's heavy. So Buddhism is about lightening our load. It's about getting rid of stuff so we can mm -hmm. lighten up. So, you know, um, angels angels can fly because they're so lighthearted. So um, um, there's actually states that you can get into with meditation that literally feels like you're flying. You feel light. You feel like a cloud. You feel airy. <sighs> but if we're keep keep thinking the same thought over and over it's going to wear us down so we you, we use things as a vehicle and then we let go of the vehicle so there's um, a modern scientist if i may interject for just a moment dan yeah. winter he's actually unlocked a, a frequency signature code between harmony and dissonance basically and so it has to do with the golden mean the golden ratio and the plonk length but basically, he worked out the physics of how to experience bliss and how to create a shareable wave. And so the opposite of vritti, or those, those kinds of thoughts which cause problems, like the dukkha, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is free. There's a. There's real. There's like science to it. it yes, like it's now. It's right now. You know. <laughs> no. Yeah. There's a science to it, and it is physical, and it is kind of like the natural law. It's like it's it's orchestrated by the laws of nature, and they are doing studies about the jhanas, which has to do with like certain frequencies and seeing like, hmm, what like may yeah maybe this frequency aligns with this jhana more, and um uh. Also, symmetry has a lot to do with it. It seems like more symmetrical patterns in the brain and more symmetrical states of consciousness are more enjoyable and more harmonized and more beautiful. And um, yeah, also a lot of times the 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 a leaf is used for a symbol for the Dhamma because the leaf is completely and utterly perfectly organized and harmonized in its construction and in its fabrication by the by the natural law of nature um, with the ratios of how it's produced and how each cell aligns and how each each stem branches out it's like it's like beautifully symmetrical and it's based off ratios and it's based off math it's like yes. there's a um uh, what's it called? Yeah, what, what's that spiral called? The the golden ratio. Oh, the caduceus, the golden mean spiral. It's it's like when you have that um, it's the old medical symbol where you have the two snakes going around a pole. Oh no, no, that. But I'm talking about the the ratio where it's like it's like a spiral that goes Fibonacci. Like Fibonacci spiral. So <laughs> you can actually, um, a lot of nature is like orchestrated through. Uh, these divine laws and like the natural law of nature and that's very beautiful and I've had many psychedelic experiences where I could, I could see the underlying geometry of all of all manifestation and I see mm -hmm. oh, everything is intricately interrelated and everything is perfectly harmonized as it is um, but that comes from seeing clearly so knowledge so, so yeah. Uh, simple things we've learned like from from Dan's studies he's one of the most incredible scientists I've ever heard of just listening to him it sounds like Gandalf it's almost like some some Gandalf is literally alive yeah, today given are like essentially wizards yeah it's yeah. incredible yeah it's so it's like the Buddha metal? was a scientist but only he was yes. an inner scientist yes he was he was one of the first absolutely but, but the inner and the outer are codependently originated so <laughs> The study of external reality is studying the same reality as the study of internal reality because it's all reality. There's a one word for codependent origination, and it's called juxtaposition. It's a beautiful word. Juxtaposition. Yeah. I, I've learned most about juxtaposition from a man named Ra-Uruhu. He's more of a modern mystic, and so what, what he has to say differs a lot from anybody else basically but juxtaposition it's when you take two things that aren't connected to each other and you discover the relationship between them basically okay yeah yeah so everything is interrelated with one yeah. another nothing exists in a vacuum okay bye dj good to have you yeah so nothing exists in independently every in this every specific uh phenomena lacks inherent existent existence apart from its relationship to other phenomena so that's that's the idea of dependent origination so the tree does not exist without the sun the the water 
um, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It's like there is no sound without the observer of the sound. Yes, so that's exactly what we're getting at. And we're saying that that applies to consciousness too. That's where the Dhamma differentiates. But let me continue with the Sutta. Yeah. Um, we're almost done here. Um, unless, I mean, we've been going for an hour 30 now. Are, are you guys getting sick of this? We can pick up where we left off or how are you guys feeling? No, I'm enjoying it. You're enjoying it? Okay. You already you're good, Anna? I'm, I'm about to die on the battery, but I'm going to stay for a long, as long as I can. Okay. All right, I'll continue then. Just a second. Uh, I, I don't know if you're interested, if you guys are interested, but I searched the the Pali for those words we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're interested, so um, uh, happiness is sukha, right? Tranquility, pasadi. Mm. After tranquility, rapture, piti. Yeah. After that, that, joy. Yeah. That was. <laughs> After that, joy, pamoja, pamoja, joy is pamoja, and after that, faith or conviction. Oh, it's sada. It says, in the sutta it says gladness. So gladness, yeah, yeah. joy. So or, okay. okay, so it's pamoja, and faith or conviction is sada. Okay. All right. Excellent. All right, so we got a little sidetracked, but it was a wonderful conversation. I'm going to continue with uh, the, the sutta because I think it's quite profound and important. Um, um, so we left off with gladness and then we uh, and then faith. So I was describing uh, what faith means. It's uh, more of a I have faith that my math teacher can teach me math rather than I have faith in a sky daddy that I had never seen before. Um, <laughs> uh, I say, Vikus, that faith too has approximate cause. <clears throat> it does not lack approximate cause. Um, okay, and what is the approximate cause for faith? It should be said suffering. So, <laughs> by definition, when we suffer, we're going to look away for a way out of it, because we don't like it. So the cause of even having faith in the Dhamma, faith in the Buddha, conviction in the Dhamma of Buddha, is because we are suffering. So uh, none of us would be here today if it wasn't for suffering. <laughs> we wouldn't have come together in the Sangha if we haven't all come together to uh, seek the path to the way to the end of suffering. Um, and, um, even if we aren't suffering, uh, at some point it played a role in bringing us here. Um, <clears throat> and also another thing that Dom Rado often likes to emphasize is that suffering is actually not a good translation of dukkha and a better translation of dukkha would be dissatisfaction because if you ask a random person on the street, hey, man, are you suffering? They're going to say, no, no, I'm not suffering. Get out of here. But if, <laughs> if, you, ask, if you ask most people, um, are you a little bit dissatisfied most of the time? 
most people will say, uh, well, yeah, I am kind of dissatisfied most of the time. So when we're dissatisfied um, and we don't have relief from the dissatisfaction, then it becomes uh, something more like suffering and even depression, even misery, right? But the teaching of the Buddha is not trying to fix when it's all... Well, it it does fix all that stuff, but it's not saying, oh, let's only fix the suffering and the misery. No, let's fix the dissatisfaction. Just the tiny little bit of, oh, I feel a little restless. I don't feel a little comfortable here. That tiny little bit of dissatisfaction is what we're bringing it into. Because bringing it into dissatisfaction brings it into all that other uh, deep, dark dukkha stuff. And all those other problems. So dissatisfaction doesn't have to be a big deal like, oh, I'm suffering. It's just being dissatisfied. That's what we're talking about here. Um, I say, Bikus, that suffering too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for suffering? It should be said birth. So yeah, being born in the literal sense of actually being born and in the sense of uh, every moment you're reborn. So I'm born, so the self uh, arises and passes away every moment. I'm not the same person I was 10 minutes ago. So um, the birth, that's what birth means here. So this, morm- this moment, all of this... M- I have the raw data of my experience. It's processed. A bunch of things happen. And then I'm born. And then my sense of self arises. So that's the birth we're talking about here. And when that sense of self arises, um, that root contraction that we feel this is I, me, or mine, that's birth. And that thing is constantly birthing and dying every moment. Uh, we're just not paying attention, so we think it's continuous. Um, um, so, but that's the cause of of uh, our suffering. Uh, I say, Bikus, that birth too has approximate cause. It does not lack approximate cause. And what is the approximate cause for birth? It should be said, existence. Right. So the stuff, existence that's going on, causes the birth of this person. Um, they're intricately interrelated and they cause each other. Without the existence, there is no person. So, and without the person, there is no existence. So they're dependent upon each other. And each one lacks inherent existence apart from its relation to the other. You might be familiar with this, Ian, in, in um, Hinduism, the concept of Indra's net. Yeah. Yes. So, so all the nodes of the net aren't really there. It's just the crossing over of the ropes. So, so all the so there's a net, right? And at each point the net crosses over, you say there's a point here, and that point here would be an entity or self. But that entity does not exist apart from the ropes crossing over. So it's inherently empty of independent existence. The whole of Indra net, uh, Indra's net is 
a seamless uh, whole. What were you going to say? Well, if I could add something to the, the Indra's net, yeah. the, the most beautiful part about Indra's net to me is that it's a reference to fractality because every single point on the net reflects every single other point on the net. Yes. So, it, so it really helps bring us into this, um, this matrix of awareness yes. where we can actually really see the code for ourselves. Yeah, so yes, fract, uh, fractal nature of reality. <laughs> yes. That, um, I think there's a Taoist, the part contains the whole, <laughs> and the whole contains the part. <clears throat> you can see all of the Dhamma in a leaf. You can see all of reality in a leaf. The divine in the mundane, the infinite in the finite. <clears throat> existence. I say because that existence too has approximate cause, and its cause should be said clinging. <clears throat> so clinging. The root clinging is what causes this whole big shebang of samsara. And what is the cause for clinging? It should be said craving. And what is the cause for craving? It should be said feeling. For feeling, it should be said contact. For contact, the sixth sense basis. So what I was talking earlier about the eye faculty, the ear faculty, the mind faculty. So the mind, there's no thoughts if there's nothing to think about. So that's what the contact for the mind. For the eye faculty, there's the forms that it comes in contact with. Eye consciousness is produced. <coughs> and that's what it's saying here. So the only reason we have feelings is because there is contact with the six sense bases. So all of the senses we have make contact and then the feeling arises and then the feeling um, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that's the only feelings we can have. We have pleasant feelings, we have unpleasant feelings, and we have neutral feelings. So those feelings, we either say, I like it or I don't like it. And the I like it or I don't like it uh, produces craving. And the craving, so wanting something, produces clinging. So attachment to that thing and clinging creates existence and then existence creates the sense of self. So the sense of self happens after all of these things, other things happen, but they all happen very quickly each moment. And so that's why meditation is literally developing the clarity and the sharpness of mind and almost uh, uh, a profound quickness. So um, meditation um, should be thought of, and I'm stealing this from Frank Yang, should be thought of more like a physical fitness endeavor. So you're tr literally training the mind reaction time to things, and it's quick and its ability to to perceive subtle formations and subtle experiences, and bring bring it out of the dark. So shedding light on that which was in the dark, in the subconscious. So mm -hmm. a, a parallel to Jungian stuff is the shadow work, right? So so bringing up the, sh integrating the shadow or whatever. 
So you're bringing that which was vague and going on in the background that you didn't really understood, but it was making you feel bad and bringing it into the light of awareness and paying attention to how these things arise step by step. And that takes practice, that takes clarity, and that takes quickness. Um, so it is, it is a skill that we can develop. Um, I just want to say I really love how you brought into um, meditation as a physical exercise. Yeah. Because that's that's my favorite analogy for it, because it's like you don't go to the gym, do one bicep curl and go, oh, well, I can't actually do this and then walk away. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, it's my description of meditating is when you're my description of meditating is basically when you're sitting there, awareness upon the breath. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I was actually thinking instead of focusing on my breath. How long was that? Oh, that was one rep. OK. Let me just yep. do some Never more. Never mind, start again. <laughs> yeah, so you, you got to rep this thing out. You go to the gym, you rep it out. Um, you can't, I mean, you have a limit, right? You get tired and you're like, okay, if I do this anymore, I'm going to exhaust myself and cause myself more suffering. Take a break. So the first step time you go into the gym, you're not going to bench 500 pounds, right? Right. <laughs> so you, you work your way up. But it's a practice and it's a development and it comes through repetition. You don't do one rep. Oh, I can't do this. This doesn't work. And then stop. <laughs> so, yeah, meditation is the same way. That's a um, good analogy with the bicep curl and um, holds close to home because I'm a avid gym goer. Nice. Um, OK, so. Um, for contact, the six sense bases for the six 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 sense spaces name and form all right so name and form here is a translation of nama rupa so that's something that also is in hinduism so nama rupa uh, is essentially uh, the name or the labels we give to things as well as the form we ascribe to them so it's a form of interpretation so uh, form can th be think, uh, thought of as a boundary. So where does my skin end and the chair begin? The boundary between where my skin ends and the chair begins is a form. And saying this is and that's my skin is name. So that's Nama Arupa. A baby hasn't developed this as much. So when a baby sees a bird, it doesn't know that's a bird. It's just a spontaneous cluster of sensations that are magically happening, and it's not differentiated from the things around it. So the nama, the name would be that's a bird, and the form would be all that other stuff isn't a bird, and then this section is the bird. So that's name and form, and that applies to all of our experience. We get we have names and forms for it. Um, and what's the cause of name and form? Consciousness. And what's the cause of consciousness? Volitional formations. I say, Bikus, that volitional formations too have a proximate cause. They do not lack a proximate cause. And what is the proximate cause for volitional formations it should be said ignorance 
ignorance in the sense of the spiritual type of ignorance, not the ignorance like you would say, oh, Donald Trump is ignorant or something, or that or that person is ignorant because they don't believe my beliefs or that or that they don't agree with me. They're ignorant. No, like spiritual ignorance. So a sort of muddiness of things and unconsciousness of things, not paying attention, uh, not not having a clear and bright, vivid awareness, an acute perception, an acute mindfulness. Um, so the opposite of that would be ignorance. So things are happening, but you weren't really paying attention to all the things that happened. And then now after the fact, you're like, how did I end up here? Because you're ignorant to all the things that happened that led to it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like a pejorative term. I'm not saying like, oh, you're an idiot because you're ignorance. So it's a different, it's a more spiritual uh, use of the word ignorance. It's not like a insult. Pretty much if you're, if you're alive here or now, uh, there is ignorance that led up to that is the idea uh, with the Buddha. It's non-awareness. Yeah, it's a lack of awareness. Lack of awareness. It's it's not meant with hate. Like I know it's not meant with hate or anything. It's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prejudice. I, it's um, it's technical though. It's precise. And yeah. in the modern in the culture of today, they tried to say you can't say that's bad. You can't say stupid. You can't say that. Well, no, it's stupid. Yeah, some things are stupid <laughs> for sure. It's just, it's even a technical term. It's cause yeah. of that repulsion, you know? I mean, you have to be able to honor and recognize that you can't just dismiss it as if it doesn't exist. That just makes it bigger. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, there's so many more sidetracks that I can go on here, but I'm <laughs> I, like, I want to say something that, that sparks my mind, but I'm literally trying to finish the sutta. I'm going to finish it. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, we can uh, end the recording so the YouTubers don't get bored. Um, but if if you guys want to stay longer and talk, uh, feel like you're totally welcome to. Um, Thus, because with ignorance as proximate cause, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as proximate cause, consciousness. With consciousness, name and form. With name and form, the sixth sense bases. With the sixth sense bases, contact. With contact. Uh, feeling with feeling, craving with craving, clinging with clinging, existence with existence, birth with birth, suffering with suffering, faith. So it's coming full circle around to the mm -hmm. liberation. So, so the the uh, the dependent origination of dukkha as well as the dependent origination to the cessation of dukkha, and that's the mm -hmm. mandala of of samsara. Um, with suffering faith, uh, with faith gladness, with gladness rapture, with rapture tranquility, with tranquility happiness, with happiness samadhi, with samadhi um, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, with the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, revulsion, with revulsion dispassion, with dispassion, liberation or de deliverance. With liberation, 
the knowledge of destruction or the knowledge of nibbana, cessation, unsurpassed awakening, voidness. Just as bhikkhus, when rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the cleft, gullies and creeks. The, these being full fill up with the pools. These being full fill up the lakes. These being full fill up the streams. These being full fill up the rivers. These being full fill up the great ocean. So too, with ignorance as proximate cause, volitional formation comes to be. With volitional formation comes to be consciousness, etc., etc. Um, with liberation as proximate cause, the knowledge of destruction or cessation. So, as a beautiful analogy, it's like the trickling down of the snow melting on the mountaintop, filling the valleys and the creeks and the gulls and the rivers and the ocean. So it's a dependently originated thing all the way to um, the cessation of suffering uh, or awakening. So that's the end of the sutta. Um, I'm going to end the recording here just so it's not too long of a YouTube video. But uh, thank you, everyone. Um, you're welcome to stay after. Um, but this is the end of the recording. So thank you, everyone, for staying and listening. Thank you, Ian, for coming. It was it was wonderful to hear your voice and and hear what I you have to offer. And I, I love, yeah, I love when people come on and they they speak out and it produces dialogue. It's it's really wonderful to have. Um, so thank you.